0: Hello and welcome back everyone to the second Growing Point Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Boydgen. Thanks for tuning in to the second episode. As always, our goal with this podcast is simple, to provide Alberta farmers and agronomists with timely, relevant, and valuable agronomic knowledge through interviews with experts in various fields of agriculture. We're hoping that the information and discussions from this and future podcasts that we put out bring value to you and your farm. So in this episode, I'm chatting with Dr. Sherry Stridehorse. Uh, she is an agronomy research scientist with Alberta Agriculture. She's been conducting research in Alberta for a number of years that always seems to generate results that are directly applicable to farm management. Um, so I was, I was looking forward to, to asking her a few questions um, and, and having a chat with her. So over the past few years, she was been she's been conducting a huge research project in Alberta, looking at stacking agronomic traits in wheat and barley. Um, so this includes in crop nitrogen, PGRs, and fungicides. Um, so so we cover a lot of details, including systems approach to research and farming, plant growth regulators. Um, cultivar-specific responses to agronomic management and and early season fungicide use. So Sherry was a wealth of knowledge um, and I had a great time chatting with her and I hope you guys enjoy listening to it um, because I sure got a lot of information. Thank you Sherry Streihorse for joining me today. I appreciate you taking the time.
1: Oh, absolutely! I'm happy to do it, Jeremy.
0: So I I heard you recently got back from from South America, and you did some tours around some agricultural areas down there. Did you did you see anything interesting down there?
1: It was it was fascinating. We were in the Peruvian highlands, and there you see them growing faba beans and barley and oats and crops that we grow. But um, every field is like as big as my living room, and um, so small, hand seeded, hand harvested. Um, So the same crops, but under such different management conditions, it was really fascinating to to take that look at agriculture in other parts of the world, and um, yeah, I, I, I love that to compare and possibly hopefully learn from some of the things they're doing and um, translate some of their practices into what we do here in North
0: America. Did you get to ch- a chance to chat with any of them and, and talk about what kind of yields or what kind of goals they're setting or anything that way? Uh,
1: the, the language barrier made that that quite difficult. So and um, the small conversations we had, um, it didn't quite make as much sense as what you think it should. So I, I think it was the Seeing, for example, walked into a Faba bean field and, and saw, um, you know, they were growing a tannin. Variety because it had the the pink on the flowers and you could see that they were kind of at a stage in March where we would be in mid June for for development and um, you could see agronomically the diseases that so they have chocolate spot there so it was more what I could observe than what we could actually communicate
0: between each other my uh, okay. Spanish is no so good <laughs> <laughs> no bueno no bueno <laughs> Um, so so you started with Alberta agriculture and forestry in 2013, um, and you obviously had quite a, a history in agriculture getting up to that point. What kind of major steps led you in that direction, um, getting you to the point you are now?
1: Um, well, I started my master's degree um, in two or I guess I finished it in um, 2003, and I was working with uh, tannin free faba beans, trying to figure out an agronomic package. Um, the the tannin type of faba beans have been grown a long time ago here, um, but now new markets were open, so kind of worked on seeding rates and uh, planting dates and um, pre harvest management for them. So that kind of got me into the science world, the agronomy world, and then after I completed my master's. Degree at the U of A. Then I started uh, my PhD, and and that was really a, a fantastic project, looking at um, cropping systems for pulse crops and and wheat, um, and looking at nitrogen rotational benefits, looking at um, pulse crop management for seeding rates, weed control, intercropping, um, the whole gamut. So was so a fantastic another opportunity to work in um, plot work in in small plots with Alberta Agriculture. I, I did it cooperatively with Alberta Ag, had sites with Ag Canada, so it really got um, me into the, the research game. And then after I completed my PhD, um, I was on the path to doing a postdoc and set up a, a really cool nether cropping systems type of project, but um, left that in the hands of some other very capable researchers and um, worked for the Alberta Pulse Commission as their executive director for three years. And um, that gave me me that link to the industry, that opportunity to work one-on-one with farmers to answer to a farmer board and really understand what farmers need. out of their crop commissions, but out of their research and what really makes a difference um, to them and their bottom line. So so that was a fantastic experience. And then I um, was hired by Alberta Egg as a research scientist in twenty thirteen and um and that's where, yeah, I, I've been now for the past we're getting on to the seventh year here.
0: It's 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 funny because um, starting with the Alberta Wheat Commission and, and Barley Commission, one of the first things I had heard from producers when I was out at trade shows was um, how much they value your research and how much they encourage us to continue um, to, to fund some of your research. So it's, it's always been a little kind of thought in, in the back of my mind you know what what maybe does sherry do differently what's your approach to um, make this more applicable for producers and make them um, see a lot of value in the research you're conducting
1: well I think um, that I really have to give credit to my husband I, I grew up a city kid you know could do the science and stuff but I didn't understand the context until um, moving on to the farm um, we we have a farm in the Nerlandia area um, about 1300 acres. And my, my contribution is making management decisions. I'm not a, a good driver or operator, but um, it's it's seeing that what is going to make a difference on the farm, um, living in that community of egg producers who are innovative, who want to address um, challenges, and what's realistic for them. So, you know, when I um, look at creating a treatment list, I, I look at are the varieties being grown in the area where the experiment will be conducted. Is this relevant for the growers? If um, Um, there's five varieties and only one has significant acreage and the others are not going to take on acreage for any particular reason, I I wouldn't um, include them in the trial. So I really want to make things... Really useful for the area that, that will have this research being conducted in and then having those results extended back to those farmers in the area so that they, when a farmer's sitting there hearing my presentation at a fall meeting, they go, hey, you know what? I grew that variety and I had that particular Challenge and when I have growers come up to me at meetings or crop walks and say, "Hey, Sherry, I'm struggling with this," um, and that becomes my research question. So it is that tight interaction with the farm, with the farmer, and and living the farm life and you know paying those fuel bills those nitrogen fertilizer bills and understanding that i think helps put me in a a good space to do research that is really meaningful for growers
0: yeah regional um getting getting specific with regions and and how this research relates to specific growing areas is is vital it's important and um, as we get deeper into research and into specifics on how to produce some of these crops it's becoming more and more apparent that um, um Variety and regional uh, differences are, are, they need to be noticed, they need to be watched. So, no, I, I, I applaud you for that. Previous, you had mentioned um, working with different cropping systems, and it kind of leads me on to the question of, of systems approach. Um, and it's something that I've read a couple times, looking at some of your research. Um, and I'm just curious, um, how do you how do you perceive a systems approach to, to farming? Um, how do you define that? And and how is your research maybe based around that idea?
1: So I guess. Um In this systems approach, or what I call a systems approach, I'm trying to mimic things um, that go on on the farm. So um, traditional small plot ag research um, that would be not a systems approach would be, you know, growing one variety and testing it at, um, let's say, 150, 250, and 350 target plants per meter square seeding rate. And it's very simple. There's not that... um, that combination. So growers, yes, they want to know how those individual seeding rates work. But the idea of stacking um, and using the systems approach is, well, let's look at seeding rates. Let's look at the interaction of seeding rates with plant growth regulators. And then let's take that one step further and look at that interaction with fungicides. So for example, um, let's say we could have two different seeding rates, um, growing viewfield wheat at 250 and 350 plants per meter squared, with and without a PGR, I am going to likely get a very different response to my PGR at 250 versus 350 plants per meter squared. At 250 plants, um, I'll have more tillers, Um, the plants will probably be slightly shorter, and that will compared to the 350 where my plants are um, more uniform at the same growth stage or all heads will be at the same growth stage and um, and I will have slightly taller plants. So that impacts how that PGR will work on those in those two different seeding rate scenarios. And then layer on top of that um, a fungicide application. So what happens with no fungicide when we have um, 250 plants per meter square? Maybe more air is running through your canopy, maybe diseases as, bad, as bad at 350 plants per meter squared, maybe a fungicide becomes more important. Um, maybe a dual fungicide is even necessary. So it, it's taking that um, these scenarios from the farm that are being used in field a, and um, combining them and and using that systems approach, not just the one off. So, so, so I think that's what makes it quite valuable on farm is is these combinations.
0: That that begs the question of why why is this type of research more beneficial to producers than, than maybe the more simplistic approach of, of just testing the seeding rate um, and getting that straightforward understanding of, of just what seeding rate would do under those specific conditions.
1: That is the unique aspect. and um, But you can, instead of having experiments with two seeding rates, which is nice and simple, here we start getting into a ridiculously large experiments that are, are certainly harder to implement, harder to run stats on. Um, but I, I think the extra effort is worth it for the information we get for growers.
0: So speaking of systems approach, in in, in 2014 to 2016, you conducted what I perceive as one of the largest agronomic um, experiments that I have come across, um, looking at both wheat and barley um, in a variety of different agronomic management practices, looking at seeding rates, looking at in-crop nitrogen, plant growth regulators. And fungicides at different timings. Um, can you can you maybe talk about what the goal of this study was?
1: Absolutely. Um, so, so there were a separate experiment for barley, a separate experiment for wheat. Um, but you know, we had experiments up to 64 treatments, and the idea was what combination of different agronomic management practices could we use to try and increase wheat yields to 120 bushels per acre or barley yields to um, 150 bushels per acre. So, so we're trying to set these targets, and um, one individual agronomic practice isn't going to do it alone, and that's we're looking for those synergies between perhaps um, a higher plant seeding rate and a PGR or more nitrogen and a PGR or might more nitrogen and um, and a fungicide. So what we found um, in these combinations of different agronomic practices that wheat was more responsive um, than barley and um, we, we conducted this back at the time when foremost wheat was uh, a CPS variety and um, and that was the one variety that we worked with. And we found we were able to increase yields um, up to 18%, which was really exciting. We didn't reach our 25% target, but um, we could use combinations of management practices to get us there. And um, on barley, we found, as I mentioned, um, less responsive. But we were still able to um, increase yields by about 9%, which was exciting that we um, we could know what would work and what not so even though we didn't meet those 25% yield increase targets um it that's good information for growers too if they're putting on an agronomic practice or an input that doesn't actually result in a profitable yield response um they need to or an agronomic benefit they need to question why they're doing that so i think that was kind of at a very high level what the goal was um was to you know push our yields um and see where we can make profit and make good decisions. So we're using our inputs as wisely as possible.
0: All right, we're going to pause here and go to a quick commercial break, but we will be right back.
2: Do you yearn for the days of flower power, tie-dye shirts, and bell bottoms? Channel your free spirit and join the Alberta Wheat Commission for Wheatstock, one day of peace and wheat. Located in the open fields of T.P. Creek on August 8th, hear from agronomy and research headliners including Jennifer Otani, Dean Spanner, and Kelly Turkington. The first 50 registrations will receive a pair of our famous wheat socks. For more information and to register, go to albertawheat.com. Peace, love, and wheat. Why do you think wheat was more
0: responsive than barley in this trial?
1: Um, I, I think... So the one wheat variety that we got the biggest response out of it was an older variety. Um, so it didn't have maybe the breeding progress that some of um, some other varieties have had when it doesn't have as much disease resistance as where we saw particular benefits from fungicides in terms of increasing yield. But I, I think um, just because wheat is a bigger acre crop um, – in in Western Canada compared to barley, um, there's been more breeding effort, and, and maybe there's more to work with with the genetics there. That there's there is that higher yield potential um, to to go um, further with wheat than perhaps there is with barley, just because of the size of the acres of the. Wheat versus barley, and then the corresponding investments um, in the breeding
0: program. It seems there was a there was a variety of different management inputs put on to both wheat and barley. Wheat specifically had in crop nitrogen applied, um, manipulator applied, so the plant growth regulator, uh, and then fungicides at different timing. Was was there any specific input that created more of an increase than others, or was? Uh, it kind of distributed across across all my management tactics.
1: Yeah, there was actually a huge difference. Um so we, we started out with a base rate of fertility to reach, um, our, our yield goals for the area. So when we topped up with in-crop nitrogen, we topped up with, um, 30 or 60 pounds of nitrogen beyond meeting those minimum requirements. And, and you know, that extra bit of nitrogen only gave us a 0.8% yield increase. So, so that was really small, but I, I think that's largely accounted for because we, we met those base nutrient rates with our seeding application of nitrogen. Um, our one PGR application increased yields by 2.3%. So we got, you know, some small improvements in, in standability. But I think the thing with plant growth regulators is while they might not always cause large or any yield increase, um, they're a tool to help a grower manage a crop at harvest. They So if a grower has... Um, an 80-bushel crop versus an, uh, a standing 80-bushel crop versus a flat 80-bushel crop. I think they would pick that standing 80-bushel crop um, to, to harvest. So in many ways, we didn't get a huge yield response from the PGRs because it is intended to help that crop stand. And it, you might get the yield bump, which is nice, but its real goal is that harvest management piece. Where we saw the huge yield increases was um, – from a dual fungicide application on the variety foremost. And I do want to point that out, that it is a particular um that variety just saw huge yield responses to that. And and when you look at the disease ratings for that variety, it's moderately susceptible to leaf spot. And we um, did have a lot of leaf disease in these trials that we conducted over 15 site years. So when you can control that disease, um, you're going to get big yield responses if there isn't that genetic built-in resistance in that variety. So... Um, for wheat, we, we really saw that the big winner was um, was the fungicide on foremost wheat. If we look at barley, it was a little bit of a different um, situation. We saw that the biggest yield response um, actually came from the nitrogen. So maybe that states to me that um, we could pump bump up our nitrogen rates a little bit on our barley. Um, and I think there we as growers and um, agronomists struggle with the higher rates of nitrogen on barley because it lodges so terribly. And if you're um, targeting uh, a malt and you, you have that protein conundrum. So, so I think nitrogen is the thing on, on barley that we saw give it gave the largest yield increase. We saw post-emergence nitrogen gave a 5% yield increase on barley um, going from 255 to 355 plants per meter squared increased our yield by 0.4%. So it didn't do much there increasing the seeding rate for our yield, but it did increase days to maturity um, often quite significantly. So, you know, there is that management component to that. And then our PGR increased yields by 2%. Um, and the fungicide there by three percent. So, um, and a lot of this depends on the situation. If a grower was growing barley on a field that had a, a history of continuous barley, we would expect there was a lot would be a lot more disease pressure, and we probably get bigger yield responses from the fungicide. So, um, in in the general scenario, barley, um, it was the in-crop nitrogen. In the general scenario with wheat, it was the fungicide that caused the biggest yield
0: response essentially what I'm getting from this discussion is that it's it's all very specific to what conditions you're growing in um, and and if you're if you're dealing with a situation where there's not a lot of disease issues or you've you've been out of that crop out of rotation of that crop for maybe four years you know fungicide isn't going to be as as useful to you um, and if you're already putting a, a um, uh, a, a useful amount of nitrogen with your seed. Um, in crop nitrogen might not be as beneficial to you if you're already reaching those goals on, on wheat. Um, so it sounds very, very um, crop and variety and regionally specific.
1: Exactly. So I think that's where, you know, I do these research in these small plots and I can come up with trends, but I think it's important for growers to take the learnings from my studies and, um, apply them very consciously to their own. It's not, you can't carbon copy what worked for Sherry here is going to work, um, for, for farmer Smith over there. Um, the, the grower does have to consider certainly their variety, their fertility package and, um, and their cropping history. So, um, there is a lot of thought, and I think as agriculture gets more and more complicated and we try to do a better and more precise job, um, growers need as much information as they can from these sort of studies to make those wise
0: decisions. So one thing we haven't really talked about much in terms of these responses is, is moisture um, and, and rainfall. Did that play a role in the responses of, of some of these inputs?
1: Absolutely. So um, one of the things that we saw, um, well, I should maybe take a step back and say that we had 15 site years of data from, as you mentioned, 2014 to 2016. But we had Lesbridge under irrigation, we had a Lesbridge dryland site, Killam in east central Alberta where it's a little drier, around Edmonton, and then in Flair at the Peace region. And you know, so we had all realms of moisture, um, all realms of heat stress, drought stress, moisture stress, um, which was excellent for really trying to figure out what works well under certain conditions. And I, I think the big thing we saw there, um, I'm going to speak to the example of, of pen hold wheat um, versus foremost wheat. We saw that foremost wheat, um, we got a yield response from that variety with the application of fungicide when we had 116 millimeters of rain or four and a half inches. But pen hold, um before we could get a yield response from those same fungicide treatments, we needed to have um, over 260 millimeters of rain or over 10 inches of rain. So you can see um, that, different moisture conditions are going to really impact what agronomic decisions a grower has to, need to, has to make. And, and I think growers are very well aware of that. But when we can start putting a little bit of a, a boundary around that or, or some guidelines of what kind of rain amount do we need by a certain amount of time? Um, and do I have to start being um, mindful of these different um, agronomic decisions that I need to make? So we, we can't, you know, say, three inches of rain, go spray fungicide, boom. But um, it's never going to be that simple, but at least we can get things on people's radar. Um, For foremost, if you're at four inches of rain, you really need to start scouting that field very closely and be watching and and be ready for that. Whereas Penhold, you know, a variety that has better genetic resistance to foliar diseases, Maybe you need to be less concerned. If it's um, one of those possibly droughty seasons, you've only had three inches of rain, don't need to panic. You should still be checking your fields, but um, but not the panic like you'd have with the foremost. So that environmental aspect really needs to layer into this all. And um, the more environments and the more diverse environments that we can conduct this research in um, will give us better guidance for growers in terms of how they can work rainfall and weather into their decision making. So
0: this... I guess kind of leads us into the topic of g by e by m interaction which would be genetics by environment by management interaction i mean we've kind of we've talked about it and 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 hit on it here and there but um this seems to be where a lot of the agronomic value um, comes from in research is is incorporating all three of these factors because yes there's parts of eastern uh, alberta that don't get as much rain as the parts of western alberta and northern versus southern Um, and then the varieties that they're going to be using within those regions are going to be different and their management tactics are going to be different and the response in northern Alberta is going to be completely different to what we see in southern Alberta so um, maybe could you could you touch on a little bit of the g by e by m interaction you saw and and maybe what we can take from it
1: you know when you look a grower looks at the seed guide and um You know, they see Penhold and they go, well, it has an I rating or an intermediate rating for leaf spot and an MR or a moderately moderately resistant rating for fusarium head blight. And they compare that um, with a a Goodwin who is intermediate for both or um, an Entice that's moderately susceptible. They need to start factoring those in Huge investments are made into breeding and great progress is made um, into breeding new varieties that have new traits, but we need to take um, the next step to incorporate uh, the, that disease resistance, that standability, that maturity rating data into our agronomic packages that we're using on-farm. And, and I think that that we're starting to go there, um, but I think that's where we can really fine-tune um, and improve our, our management um for for wheat and for barley, um, for example, if we look at the CWRs weeds um, Brandon Viewfield in the Alberta Seed Guide, there's a four centimeter height difference with Viewfield being four centimeters shorter. That makes a big difference um, in how we actually see these varieties perform in the field and how useful it is to put a PGR on, on these varieties. There's certainly the lodging rating component of that, um, but all of these individual traits of a variety. Um, are starting to dictate how a grower can optimize their agronomic
0: input. Well, I mean, again, this, this kind of leads into some of the the research that Linda Hall had done um, and that you are are leading uh, in terms of industry and extension where we saw a lot of uh, different responses from different um, CWRS varieties. I mean, looking at results from 2017, um, much more seemed to not change at all in terms of lodging response um, to a PGR where Eli had a response at every location. Um, so is this is this similar kind of to what we, we saw with the other trial in terms of a varietal difference and what that breeding program looks like?
1: Absolutely. Um, so, so much more is... Um a shorter variety here. Um, its height is listed at 75 centimeters, and I think you quoted Eli, which is listed at 81 centimeters. That that six centimeters of height distance. Um, That Eli has that wheat head six centimeters higher up in the canopy. And when the wind blows that high weight um, up that much taller just makes for a bigger lever and more likely that it's going to, uh, going to lodge. Um, so, you know, that height difference is certainly playing into, um, how we have to fine tune work for PGRs. But I do want to emphasize that height alone isn't the only, um, factor that is going to determine if a a PGR is going to work particularly well on a variety. We actually worked with um, six different CWRS wheat varieties in 2018. Um, We we took much more out of the trial since it's being um, moved into the CNHR class. and um, looked at varieties and how responsive they were. And we saw, for example, Plentiful um, started out with 95 centimetre height. We added PGRs to it and it went down 13 centimetres. So huge reduction in height, um, whereas a a view field um, was only reduced in height by eight centimetres. So we're seeing very different responses in terms of how much a PGR will reduce the height of different varieties. And not only that, um, we see that Brandon is a variety that tends to lodge under quite intensive management practices, and the PGR manipulator is is one that brand and manipulator combination seems to be one of the most consistent PGR responses we have, whereas we... um, We can see that some varieties, you know, in one environment might have a four centimeter height reduction. In another environment, um, they might have no height reduction with the PGR. Um, So it's really, we need to do this work so growers, when they are growing a certain variety, can make those decisions as to when the PGR would be the best used on a particular variety.
0: Does, I mean, being trying to be location specific, I guess, let's say vermilion, does does a, a, a reduction in height always equal a reduction in lodging?
1: Um, I, I guess not necessarily. Um, so we certainly can have height reductions and still have lodging. Now vermilion's maybe not the best place to talk about that because they tend to get less rainfall and a variety that might, um, lodge in St. Albert or in Barhead might not lodge in Vermilion. Um, but that being said, we can have a variety. One variety might have a five-centimeter height reduction, and um, that's enough to stop it from lodging, whereas another variety might have an eight-centimeter height reduction, and it still lodges even with the PGR. So that's where this kind of work um, can help growers make really informed decisions.
0: I'm, I'm, just, I'm looking at all this information and the variation in response in terms of what variety you're dealing with with how much moisture you're getting, what region you're growing in. If I'm I'm a producer switching from, um, let's say, Brandon to Viewfield, and I have a management program that's been working very well for me for the past four years, how do I know that that program is going to be what's best for viewfield do i know that that program is going to be what's best for viewfield and and how do i i guess how do i approach this information to make sure that i'm getting most out of the variety that i am growing is that something we can answer right now
1: i i think well you gave a great example because i've worked quite in depth with brandon and viewfield and i i can give growers some pretty good information on that so for example brandon um If you've got decent moisture in your growing area and you are pushing this crop with nitrogen fertilizer, then Manipulator is probably a really, really wise choice for you. Um, Whereas with Viewfield, same wet environment, same nitrogen, um, you... The PGR as a manipulator probably isn't going to help you out um, because the genetics are there for Viewfield to stand really well. Um, the next struggle that a grower is going to get into if they translate their brand and management package directly to Viewfield is the nitrogen needs. Viewfield. Um, Seems to me to need a lot more nitrogen to meet minimum protein requirements. So view fields can put on bushels a little bit easier than Brandon, but then those bushels need that extra nitrogen top up um, to meet minimum protein requirements. So in many ways, it's um, growers running across these problems with varieties in their fields and and telling me about them, and I'm doing you know these trials and kind of stumbling across um, these issues as well. So for Big acre varieties, that's where we're trying to go to and trying to use that crystal ball to say, hey, Brandon, um, it was grown on 21% of... the CWRS or of the dryland wheat acres um, in 2018. That's variety we should put this agronomic work into because it's going to help a lot of growers. We see Viewfield possibly as a new up-and-comer commanding of a lot of acres, so that's why we're doing work on that particular
0: variety in upcoming research as well. All right, it is commercial break time, but we will be right back.
2: Looking to lower your grain conditioning costs and increase efficiencies. A study by Team Alberta estimated that in 2018, the cost of fuel used for grain drying in Alberta was between 35 to 45 million dollars. Team Alberta is seeking farmers that are interested in participating in a three-year study on grain conditioning systems. Volunteer today to be a part of the solution to lowering grain drying costs and increasing efficiencies in Alberta. For more information or to volunteer, you can call Shannon Sarita at 403-219-6263 or visit our commission website. Team Alberta is a collaboration between Alberta Barley, Alberta Canola, Alberta Pulse Growers and the Alberta Wheat Commission to advance policy issues that impact Alberta's crop sector with all levels of government.
0: So, I mean, you kind of you kind of touched on the topic of, of increased protein and viewfield maybe being a bit more challenged with. If you're running with the same nitrogen rate that you ran with with Brandon, you're you're potentially going to see a decrease in, in your protein at the ends. Um, but this seems to be a topic that is getting more and more common in Western Canada. How do I make sure that I'm getting my protein? Um, is why is this becoming more of an issue, or is it becoming more of an issue?
1: Um, I think. Partially, it's becoming an issue because we have breeders putting out fantastic varieties with yield potentials um, higher than we've ever seen before in varieties that are suited um, for, for the prairies in Western Canada, which is really exciting. The thing that we can't do, though, is assume that the management um, that we used for a variety that had a yield target of 70 bushels, a CWRS, wheat variety that could yield 70 bushels, we had knowledge on nitrogen programs to get that 13.5, but now we have CWRS wheat varieties coming out from breeders who have yield potential of um, 95, 100 um, bushels per acre. So now growers need to adjust their nitrogen management thinking and uh, that extra bushels at that protein going from 70 to 95 bushels is going to require growers to have an extra 47 pounds of nitrogen being added to that system so they can meet both yield and protein goals simultaneously.
0: So again, trying to think from a producer perspective, when when I'm looking at this and maybe bringing a new variety on would it be would it be smart to maybe begin to question all of my management tactics that I have right now you know maybe I'm running at 100 pounds of nitrogen an acre is this appropriate for this variety I'm utilizing fungicide at this timing is this no longer appropriate for this variety I guess how do I approach a new season with a new variety maybe that hasn't gone through the agronomic testing because there are, there will be those varieties is there something producers can do to make sure that they're they're testing their their new varieties?
1: Absolutely and I think you know I maybe I haven't done any work on them but maybe their neighbor has grown it um, so, so that's the and the seed grower that they got that new variety from. It's important that when growers switch to a new variety ask those who have experience with it. So ask your seed grower you know how did it stand? What kind of nitrogen did you use? Um, ask for that experience. Um, There is certainly the information in the seed guide. If you are growing a variety that has um, a poor rating for leaf spot compared to what you were using, um, then definitely that fungicide is necessary. If your leaf spot resistance rating is actually better than your old variety, then still be mindful, still be out scouting that. but think maybe you might not have to use that. So, um, there's certainly a lot of things that can point us in these directions um, and the more questions you ask of people who have had experience with it, um, certainly the better. And I think your um, your seed grower, who you get that from because they've had that experience, is certainly a great place to start.
0: One, um, one topic you are uh, currently in the process of investigating would be early season fungicides. Um, is something that we've had some research in the past, come from the U.S. um, and come from Australia, and we've even had um, some research in Alberta looking at barley with Kelly Turkington in terms of early season fungicides. Is this something that kind of ties into that um, difference in variety responses, difference in genetics? Is, Is this something that we're trying to get a grasp on with this new research direction of early season fungicides?
1: Um, I guess it's certainly part of it, and it's something worth investigating, but I think we just need to revisit that whole concept of early season fungicide, and what I refer to there is that half rate of propiconazole or tilt at your herbicide timing. I think um, many growers um, feel that this is a a cheap insurance to put um, that fungicide in when they're spraying their herbicide, and and see it as a good option, um, just that extra protection with minimal cost. I can certainly respect where they're coming from. But we need to really look at how um, sustainable that practice is. There are many instances of fungicide resistance, um, particularly in Europe where there is a lot of fungicide use and has been historically for a lot longer than what we've been using them here in Western Canada. And when they start getting resistant to stripe rust, um, so their Group 3 fungicides aren't working as well, um, leaf spot, tan spot are resistant to Group 11 fungicides and um, sometimes there's different tan spots being resistant to both group 3 and 11 fungicides, we start going, wow, these are tools from our toolbox that might not work for us in the future, and we want to avoid that. So um, there is that genetic component, but I also think the bigger part of it is the sustainability and making sure growers to make wise decisions with fungicide use um, so that we don't cause um, resistance to occur because every time a grower um, sprays a field and if it's an unnecessary fungicide application, it is selecting for fungicide resistance um, because these diseases hang out low in the canopy. Um, They are there and these applications, these half rates particularly, um, and um, non-necessary applications can be non-lethal exposure to these fungicides fungi that are hiding down low in the canopy, and we don't want to um, contribute to resistance. So so that's um, a component of it. We have layered in um, the different cultivars. We're looking at Brandon and Viewfield in this particular project. To just make sure that we're, you know, what works for one variety, um, is also true for another um, high acre variety. The other thing we're moving to is, you know, if growers really insist on that early fungicide application, um, might we get more benefit from moving that fungicide application from a herbicide timing to tank mixing it with your PGR, a manipulator type PGR, and applying it when the plants are a little bit bigger at growth stage 30 to 32 when there's more leaf area, potentially more disease there, and will that translate to a yield response? So what we saw um, in 2018 um, low disease levels because it was um, a, a drier year as, as growers are aware but we saw we could control that disease and drop it. The interesting thing that we saw is that didn't re- translate into a yield response and growers need to question if you're doing something and you don't get a yield response and there's no agronomic benefit from it, um, then maybe we shouldn't do it, particularly if that practice will help contribute to um, the development of fungicide resistance. So that's what we're working on in that project, um, hopefully 2019, at least from a researcher's perspective. Gives us some some good data um, for controlling disease, and we have those higher disease levels, and we'll we'll see what recommendations we get um, after the conclusion of the 2019 growing season. Is
0: is there any indication right now that we've or in in your research or past research to show that there potentially is a value to doing this? Um, because I I mean, as an agronomist, I've spent time in Western Canada and and Eastern Canada, and it, it seems to be not common practice, but it does occur so what what is perpetuating this is there is there occurrences or situations where it might be beneficial it can we can we make some of those jumps or or are we not in a place to be able to say that yet
1: i think there certainly have been indications of it so you know um you know, grower X says, you know, this worked really well and the field that I did this um, had an extra, let's say, five bushels per acre. The thing is, that was that field, that scenario. And what we want are repeatable, um, not those anecdotal things. So I want to make recommendations to growers that under this condition, these you know, weather conditions. With this variety, we're going to get a response from that fungicide nine out of ten times. If you can get that yield response from that fungicide at that early application one out of ten times, you probably shouldn't be doing it all those ten years. And that's the kind of information that we're trying to gather. So it's that predictability and that consistency in response um, from these practices.
0: Yeah, Making sure that the time we're using it is uh, economical and for the longevity of that tool making sure that we're not creating any resistance so yeah.
1: exactly and if we can you know pinpoint that if if we do see a yield response from an early fungicide application what environmental conditions surrounded that so that when a grower is making that decision they can say you know what this year shaping up like those conditions where we saw a yield response so we should do that fungicide application or we don't have those conditions so we shouldn't do that agron- or that fungicide application thank
0: you for taking the time to to chat with me today sherry I mean we've gone over a lot. Um, and I just, one final question before I let you go. Um, I'm just curious if you see any opportunity um, for future agronomic research in Western Canada that, that maybe we're sitting in a knowledge gap um, that might be beneficial for us to, to maybe dig into.
1: I, I think, you know, the nitrogen issue is becoming more and more with these varieties, and growers are struggling with protein, I think that's going to be a a big gap, and and we do have research projects starting um, on that in the 2019 growing season. I'm collaborating with Brian Bears there. So that work is coming, and um, it's always that communication from what struggles are being experienced on farm. I I know, um, I think the next thing will be also linking back you know, what conditions, what environmental conditions make a particular agronomic decision a wise one or a not wise one? What field conditions? So, um, interlinking that weather data and the environmental conditions with agronomic management decisions is, I think, where, where we need to go and layering in that, um, the complications of our systems, the crop rotation history, the varieties. So it's not simple, but I think the more information we can gather and give to growers, they can make better, more precise decisions decisions to be more profitable and, and grow more
0: with less. Well, again, thank you for the time, Sherry. I do appreciate it. And I look forward to chatting with you in the future. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. All right. Thank you for listening to the second Growing Point podcast episode. Um, Any of the key points or topics that Dr. Sherry Stridehorse and I discussed will be in the show notes as always, so be sure to refer back to there for any information. Um, make sure you subscribe to our podcast Uh, the next episode i'm going to be chatting with dr kelly turkington from agriculture and agri-food canada and we're going to discuss his research um, on disease impacts and mitigation in western canada cereal crops Um, he is full of information, um, so I'm looking forward to, to sitting down and, and chatting with him. He's actually coming in, um, so we're going to have a good discussion about some of the research that's been going on and, and where it's headed to. Um, if you enjoyed this podcast, please take a, sec- take a second to rate and review it um, and share it with your friends, whoever you want. Um, we're happy to get it out to anyone. Um, this helps us grow and get our message out. You can also sign up for the Growing Point newsletter um, full of agronomic information. We try and make it as timely as possible. Um, head over to Alberta Wheat or albertabarley.com. Um, search for the Growing Point and sign up for our newsletter. Um, yeah, that's everything. And we will see you for the next one. Thanks, everyone.